Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with researchers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Bob Hughes, VP of Biochemistry at BioAge. Today's guest is Dr. Bill Evans, one of the world's foremost experts on muscle aging. Bill is adjunct professor of human nutrition at the University of California, Berkeley, and an adjunct professor of medicine in the geriatrics program at Duke. Previously, he was vice president and head of muscle metabolism discovery performance unit at GlaxoSmithKline, and he was also president of the Muscle and Health Division at Kinemed, a biotech startup in Berkeley, California. Most recently, he was recognized with a Lifetime Achievement Award at the 2022 International Conference on Frailty and Sarcopenia Research. Bill also currently serves as a trusted scientific advisor for BioAge's muscle aging programs. Bill, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Bob. We always like to get started by just asking you, how did you kind of get from there to here? What caused you to become interested in muscle aging? My PhD was called Human Bioenergetics, which is kind of exercise science, which focused specifically on muscle. I also did a postdoc at MIT in nutrition. It turned out that when I was in Boston, it was a brand new research facility being built, 13-story building called the USDA Human Nutrition Research Center on Aging at Tufts University, entirely focused on trying to understand the nutritional needs of older people. The first director of the HNRC was a famous scientist from MIT uh, named Hamish Monroe. And I had been working with one of his colleagues at MIT, a fellow guy named Vernon Young, who recommended me to Hamish. I got chosen to be one of the first lab directors in this brand new research facility in Boston. This was just a few years out of my PhD and just as I was finishing my postdoc. And so there I was new lab director in this brand new facility in Boston to study aging. And I decided to essentially apply some of the same exercise science to aging. We were really interested in what are some of the causes of late life disability and how does muscle change as we grow older and why do we lose muscle? Those are some of the central questions and I got pulled into it because I was asked to join a a new aging research center. That was 1982. My uh, research career has been focused on understanding why we all experience late-life disability and loss of muscle as we grow older. Late-life disability is a multifactorial physiologic phenomena. Obviously, we have neuronal degeneration, organ degeneration, but you chose to focus on muscle. Do you think that's particularly pertinent? I mean, they're all important, but what's your take on sort of muscle as a specific tissue type that drives aging? 
That's a really good question. And you're right, late life disability and risk of falling down, you know, it's poor eyesight, poor balance. But one of the kind of important publications around that time was called the Framingham Disability Study. And they had published data that showed that a large percentage of women in particular over the age of 60 reported that they couldn't even lift 10 pounds. And the muscle weakness progressed as they grow older. And so it appeared to me that the primary deficit, functional deficit as we grow older, was loss of strength. And that is directly related to how much muscle we have. That really kind of focused our attention on why do we tend to lose muscle? And it has important nutritional implications, and it has important implications for how physically active we might be. We're very concerned about these questions at BioAge, as you know. You know, mobility and strength are clearly things that impact quality of life. We can get to that in more detail in a minute. You know, I've noticed that certain people have attributed you with having perhaps even coined the term sarcopenia, or at least in its relationship to aging. Can you comment on that? I was the first to describe sarcopenia in. My colleague, Irv Rosenberg, really coined the term in a book that he and I wrote called Biomarkers, the 10 Determinants of Aging You Can Control, that we published in the early 90s. The term seemed to catch on, and so I was asked by the National Institute on Aging to organize a meeting on sarcopenia in the early 90s. And so we published a supplement to the Journal of Gerontology, and in that, my paper was called, What is Sarcopenia? And that really is the first time that the term sarcopenia had been in the scientific publication. And as you know, in thousands of research publications, it has been a primary area of research all over the world. And we still haven't completely resolved what this thing is or caused by, but I think we have some good ideas about it now. We try to reach out to a general audience, including a non-technical audience, but throughout some sort of scientific jargon, we have this term sarcopenia, which is loss of muscle mass, but there's also this term called cachexia, which is often associated with cancer and sort of a general muscle wasting in cancer patients and in other pathologic states. Could you comment on what you think are the differences between sarcopenia and cachexia? Sarcopenia, as I described it, is the age-related loss of muscle mass. And it occurs for a lot of reasons. That is, we start losing muscle fibers in our 30s. One of the causes of sarcopenia is related to the brain and loss of the nerves that connect the brain to the muscle. So we lose muscle cells as we grow older, and we also lose the size of our muscles. And that's one reason is that we just become less physically active as we grow older. There are a lot of other potential reasons for it. You know, as we grow older, we tend to have lower amounts of testosterone and growth hormone. And so these are what you might think of as kind of normal age-related changes. Cachexia is defined as the loss of muscle that's associated with a disease. 
So as you say, cancer or heart failure, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, those are associated with more rapid loss of muscle due to things like, you know, when you have cancer, you're not very hungry. So you don't eat very much. And when you have cancer and other diseases, you also have what we call inflammation. And these inflammatory so-called cytokines that are produced in disease also directly affect muscle and reduce the rate of synthesis and greatly accelerate the breakdown of muscle. So if you want to put it in a, maybe in a nutshell, cachexia is associated with a rapid increase in the breakdown of muscle, while sarcopenia is associated with a more gradual decrease in the rate of synthesis of muscle. The result, in fact, is the same, is that we lose muscle. With cachexia, we tend to lose it far more rapidly. When you said that you thought that sarcopenia was potentially due to loss of neuronal inputs through the uh, neuromuscular junction, which is the way that nerves talk to muscles, it kind of reminded me of ALS. To what degree do you think sarcopenia is really due to a kind of a dysregulation of neuronal inputs into muscle tissue? We lose 20 to 30% of our muscle fibers as we grow older. The precise cause of that is not terribly clear. And what's also interesting is that we lose what are called fast fibers or fast twitch fibers more rapidly than we lose slow twitch fibers. There are a number of physiological reasons for that, but for your audience, we have two main types of muscle fibers in our bodies. We have slow twitch fibers, which are also red fibers. And we have fast twitch fibers, which are white fibers. The analogy that I have is that you know that if you've ever had a, eaten a duck, you know that breast muscle of a duck is very dark and oily. And it's a reflection of the metabolic properties of the muscle that a duck can fly hundreds or thousands of miles without becoming fatigued. The red meat versus white meat is in part associated with how much mitochondria there are, right? Well, the red is the amount of myoglobin. Myoglobin, okay. It's related to the amount of myoglobin in muscle. White fibers, you know, a chicken breast is white and a chicken is not known for its endurance qualities. You can jump from a floor to a tabletop and that's about it. Early in my career, when I was a grad student, we did some very interesting studies where we took muscle biopsy samples from the best runners in the world at the time. And uh, we looked at their muscle fiber uh, content and we found that um, world-class marathon runners had a very, very high percentage of these slow fibers, while world-class sprinters had a very high percentage of the fast fibers. And it's a gift from your mom and dad. It's not something that you can change by training. So as we grow older, these fast fibers which contract more rapidly and with greater force, tend to go down. We lose them. And there's a relative preservation of the slow fibers. And so that alone will result in a decrease in muscle force production. And that probably begins pretty early in life. Interesting. So correct me if I'm wrong, but could that explain why most great sprinters are young and people can still be marathoners into their relatively old age? 
And that's exactly right. The world-class sprinters are probably at their best when they're 24, 25, or 26. We know that at least Olympic marathon runners can be competitive into their late 30s. You know, when you talk to athletes like Jimmy Connors, who was great and attempted to stay in shape in his tennis career, but at the end of the day, he admitted that he would lose a step. He wasn't as quick or as fast in his mid-30s. And almost certainly that is a result of the loss of fast fibers as he grew older. Michael Jordan said the same thing. Even when he retired, he's probably better than 99% of all the other basketball players, but he admitted that he lost a half a step or couldn't jump quite as high. And that's almost certainly due to these physiologic changes that occur in muscle. What do you think the role of inflammation is in the age-dependent deterioration of muscle tissue, mass, quality, if you will, cytokines? There is, as you know, a term that uh, some scientists have come up with called inflammaging. And that reflects that some older people, people generally over the age of 75, have circulating markers of inflammation. And why that occurs is not terribly clear, but some say that it might be due to some undiagnosed disease. Um, There is an increase in the amount of fat in muscle and the liver as we grow older. And fat tends to produce what are called adipokines, which also have kind of an inflammatory effect on muscle. The bottom line, though, is that these inflammatory markers affect muscle in two ways. One is that they tend to reduce the rate of synthesis of new proteins, and they can also accelerate breakdown of muscle protein. And so both of those things in the inflamed state can accelerate the loss of muscle. And it it occurs, we see this kind of inflammation that is not necessarily attributed to a disease that very old people, not so much in, in people in their 60s and early 70s. Obviously, there's a age-dependent phenomenon associated with muscle loss, but there are a couple of models of this that people try to use experimentally. Speaking of bed rest or sort of sedentary lifestyles, I know that you've been very interested in the role of bed rest or immobilization and muscle degeneration. You've done a lot of research on that. And this this concept has even come up in the context of astronauts in the International Space Station and prolonged microgravity. I was, I was just wondering if you could comment a little bit on that. I had uh, some years ago what was called a program project grant from the National Institutes of Health which is a type of grant in which you have a number of different projects, and they were all related to bed rest in old people. What we did was we put healthy older people to bed for 10 days, and we looked at what happened to their muscles function during that 10-day period. And what we found is that there was an astonishing and rapid loss of muscle in that 10-day period. That is, Just from their legs, we saw about uh, a kilogram of muscle that was lost. Now, to put that in some context, studies funded by NASA using bed rest as a model for spaceflight find that when young people go to bed for 28 days, 
they lose about 400 grams of muscle from their legs. And so older people are losing almost three times as much muscle in a third the period of time as young people. So it's an astonishing loss that occurs very rapidly. And I think what our research shows, the reason why it's probably greater in old people than young people is that muscle from old people becomes what we call insulin resistant. And insulin resistance itself is associated with decreased rates of protein synthesis. In our 10-day period, our subjects decreased the rate of protein synthesis in their muscles by almost 40%. So it was an astonishing and surprising amount of loss that occurred very, very rapidly. So when you say insulin resistance, it sort of immediately raises you know, the specter of uh, diabetes. Are you saying that older people are in general kind of more pre-diabetic, if you will, if not floridly diabetic? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that there is always this question, is there an age-related change in insulin resistance or risk of diabetes? And generally, it is true, but it's probably also associated with being fatter and having more fat in the liver and being less physically active. But there are studies that show that older people that may go to a hospital and forced to go to bed because of their hospitalization in five or six days can develop type 2 diabetes. It's very rapid. Their fasting blood glucose goes up dramatically in a very short time. Is sarcopenia associated with type 2 diabetes? A big study called the Health and Body Composition Study, it's a large cohort study funded by the National Institute on Aging, showed that people with type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance lose muscle at almost double the rate Uh, people with normal glucose tolerance. It's a very rapid change that occurs. So insulin resistance and especially diabetes is associated with accelerated sarcopenia. You know, as long as we're talking in broad terms about these syndromes, there's another concept that's become common in the medical field or the aging field called frailty. And I know that frailty encompasses a number of functional limitations that are age-related. Can you give us your definition of frailty? Yeah. So for a long time in the geriatrics field, there was this concept of frailty, but no real definition of what it was, except that you know, when you ask the geriatrician, can you define when your patient is frail? And the answer would always be, Not really, but I know it when I see it. And so my colleague, Linda Freed, who was at uh, Johns Hopkins at the time, is now the dean of the School of Public Health at Columbia, came up with a definition. And the definition was five different symptoms, I guess. One was what she called shrinkage or loss of body mass that could be associated with involuntary weight loss or even sarcopenia. But then the other ones were fatigue, reduced levels of physical activity, reduced strength, and slow walking speed. So when you think about it, four of the major criteria for frailty are related to how you function, how you move around, which is, in fact, related to sarcopenia. So now we have a definition of what this frailty thing is. And we know that frailty is a bad thing because the people that have three of those five syndromes have increased risk of disability. They have an increased risk of mortality. 
have an increased risk of falling down. So frailty now is a thing that we can define. And if we can define it, we can perhaps try to come up with some effective strategy to uh, reduce it or eliminate it. The walking speed has been, I think you alluded to this, referred to as the, quote, fifth vital sign. You know, people always want to talk about these kind of biomarkers of aging or clinical predictors of longevity, but there has been a discussion of the fact that something as simple as walking speed can be an extraordinarily robust predictor of longevity. Walking speed from day to day is remarkably similar, very, very reproducible. But as we grow older, we slow down. And so the question has been, why do we slow down? Why does our walking speed go down? And why is it such a powerful predictor of outcomes? So my lab a few years ago, we tried to look at that question. So we got a lot of older people, about 50 or 60 older people. And we measured their maximal aerobic capacity. These were all people from high functioning to pretty low functioning. And we measured their maximal rate of oxygen consumption. You know, we measured their habitual walking speed and then put them on the treadmill at that speed. So, for example, for some people, that was a very, very slow speed. And for some people, it was pretty fast. And what we found is that those that were walking the slowest were at almost 90% of their maximal aerobic capacity just to walk at 0.8 meters per second, which is very, very slow. So it stands to reason when they get up and move around and walk, they feel tired and they don't want to walk very much anymore. And so they don't. It's kind of a vicious cycle. You feel tired if you get up and walk, so you don't walk. If those that would walk the quickest, the fastest, when they were walking at their habitual speed, they were only at about 60% of their aerobic capacity, which is a very easily and reasonable pace. So the slowest walkers, when they're walking at their self-chosen speed, they're at an intensity that's similar to a world-class marathon runner at the end of a race. It's easy to see why they become fatigued and that this measurement then is really associated with the astonishing number of outcomes, health-related outcomes in older people. So it is a vital sign. You know, it's probably a more powerful predictor of mortality and risk of disability than blood pressure, for example. So there is this technical concept. It's called VO2 max. You know, the ability of a body to assimilate oxygen. Is that play into what you're describing here? Right. That's what we measure. We measure the VO2 max of all of these people. VO2 max is if you put someone on a treadmill and we collect all the air that they were breathing and then gradually increase the intensity by having them go up an ever-increasing hill until they can't go anymore, until they're absolutely fatigued. That final minute before fatigue is their maximal rate of oxygen consumption. And that's dictated by two main things. One is cardiac output or maximal cardiac output, how much blood the heart pumps, and then the ability of muscles to extract and use that oxygen. And so, for example, in world-class runners, it's cardiac output that limits their VO2 max and their performance. In many older people, 
cardiac output as much as the ability of muscles to extract and use oxygen. So, you know, the highest VO2 max I ever measured in a runner was an athlete by the name of Steve Prefontaine, who at the time was the premier middle distance runner in the United States. Great Olympic athlete, but uh, died prematurely with an extraordinarily high VO2 max, higher than any other marathon runner that we had ever measured. But we measured VO2 max of older people who had uh, VO2 max that was uh, what you might see in someone who's just had a heart attack. Very, very low aerobic capacity. So it's quite variable. And it's a kind of an integrated value of what the maximal rate of oxygen you can consume is. You refer to this habitual walking speed as being perhaps an intrinsic property of an individual body. Is it possible to willfully change one's habitual walking speed and thereby increase one's longevity? And I suppose another way of posing that is, what's the role of exercise? If your walking speed is not limited by your aerobic capacity or physical function, then walking slightly faster is not going to change anything. We did some studies years ago. We uh, took people in their 90s. This is a group of people in a nursing home in in Boston. Our oldest was 98 years old. And we put them on a a strength training program. We had them do what we call high-intensity resistance exercise training. In 10 weeks, we tripled their strength. And almost to a person, their habitual walking speed increased, their spontaneous activity, the time that they spent just moving around, increased dramatically. Many of them told us that they no longer needed to ring for a nurse in the middle of the night to use the toilet. They could get up and get their food. So it comes back to the primary deficit as we grow older is strength. And we found that if we improve strength in an older person, their spontaneous activity goes up and their habitual walking speed goes up as well. So that tells us that it's intrinsic to muscle, probably, that's causing a lot of these changes. I know, uh, Bill, you're a muscle physiologist and not a psychologist, but... There's been a lot of comment and observation in the literature about the relationship between exercise and muscularity and psychological states, mental states, depression, etc. Have you ever given that any thought and how that might work? In this study, in, these are in very old nursing home patients. So we have 100 patients that we recruited. Half of them were in what we call an attention control group. So we had them do stretching exercises and things. It was only in the group that exercised that we saw a significant decrease in depression or depressive symptoms. We recently published a paper in which we have a new method to measure how much muscle is in somebody. And so we applied that to a large cohort of more than 1,300 men in their 80s and measured their muscle mass. And what we found is that the amount of muscle that they had was strongly related to their cognitive function. Somewhat surprising result. It's related to what we call instrumental activities of daily living, which is a geriatric term. 
instrumental activities of daily living are things like being able to balance your checkbook or cook or drive a car, things that you need to do to kind of live independently. That was associated with how much muscle they had. Even after you control for age and how physically active they are and chronic diseases, it was muscle mass that was so closely related to these cognitive outcomes. And there may be some really important kind of metabolic and physiological reasons for that. But nevertheless, now that we can actually measure it accurately, we're seeing that muscle is is strongly associated with a lot of health-related outcomes that we didn't really understand before. That sort of becomes a chicken and egg problem. You know, is the muscle driving the brain or is the brain driving the muscle? Probably both. Yeah. From a mechanistic point of view, there have been suggestions, reports that muscles are an endocrine organ and muscle contraction causes the release of so-called exerkines and these things go into the brain and promote healthy brain states. Do you have any ideas about the brain-muscle connection? It's really remarkable. And now, we never really thought about it before, maybe 10, 15 years ago, but we now know that muscle, like fat, I guess, releases a tremendous number of small protein when you exercise. And these proteins have, a, in many cases, a pretty powerful metabolic effect across the blood-brain barrier in some cases. We do know that one of the most powerful risk factors for Alzheimer's disease is uh, diabetes and insulin resistance. And we know that people that are physically active have a much lower risk of diabetes. Studies show that if you walk a minimum of just three days a week, your risk of Alzheimer's disease drops tremendously. So physical activity is associated with a rather profound decrease in the risk of Alzheimer's disease. The mechanism may be just what you're referring to, Bob, is the release of these so-called myokines or proteins that are released from muscle that we really don't understand fully. BioAge is a biotech startup that's really focused on aging and age-related disease. I know that you've obviously had a very successful career in academia, but also you've been involved in small biotech at Kinemed and Big Pharma at GlaxoSmithKline and trying to address some of these age-related health problems from a pharmacologic point of view. And I was just wondering if you could make a few observations on what your sort of industry experience is and how that shaped your thinking about addressing age-related disease from a drug development perspective. Maybe the biggest drug to treat older people are called bisphosphonates. These are drugs that can treat osteopenia and osteoporosis, and they've been a big moneymaker for the drug companies. And so maybe in the you know, around 2007, 2008, pharma began to view sarcopenia as the next osteopenia or osteoporosis. And man, it's true. We all suffer from loss of muscle. And it has, as we discussed, a tremendous number of consequences. So if there could be a drug that could prevent or treat sarcopenia, you know, it may have really important societal benefits. And so we were all really excited about the prospect and were and are 
today some interesting candidates for this. But the FDA and regulators kind of dropped back and said, whoa, wait a minute. We're not sure yet that sarcopenia is an indication or is a disease or syndrome that we can treat with a drug. And if there is, we need to understand it a lot more. We need to. And so there's been this kind of give and take, push and pull between biotech, pharma, and regulators. And I think one of the reasons is the FDA realizes that once the first sarcopenia drug is approved, everybody's going to want to use it. If you could give your mom a drug and keep her out of a nursing home, you would probably pay for it yourself. You wouldn't even wait for third-party reimbursement. It potentially has an enormous societal benefit. Now, we already have an intervention that will do that in large ways, and that's exercise. As I said, we can triple the strength of a 90-year-old in in 10 weeks through strength training. And I've attempted to introduce home-based programs through state governments, and they've been only mildly successful. It's hard to convince people that have had a lifetime of sedentary living to become physically active again. There is a great potential for biotech and pharma to develop drugs that are muscle-specific that really will help people to live more functional lives. And I think we're slowly moving in that direction, but it's been a frustrating kind of relationship. So I'm a little surprised by your comment where you said the FDA thinks if we came up with a cure for sarcopenia or a treatment that everyone would want to take it. Like, why would that be a bad thing? What they're concerned about, I think, and this is something that I've been told, is they're concerned that, as you know, Bob, every drug, I don't care what it is, has some side effect. No drug is absolutely clean or pure. I think that their concern is that the sarcopenia drug may have, whatever it may be, whatever that drug may be, may have side effects that affect certain people. And remember, these are frail people that are probably also taking other drugs to treat their high blood pressure or their anemia or their osteoporosis or multiple drugs. And so there's always this concern about drug-drug interactions or that in a drug that's taken up very rapidly by a million plus people, there's going to be some people that are going to have an adverse reaction. And I think, frankly, that's what the concern is. And so the FDA has kind of given guidance, kind of, why don't you choose a patient population that's much, much smaller, and then we'll see if it works in that patient group without side effects, and then maybe we can move towards larger populations. So I think that there is this concern about side effect profile of any drug in a frail old population, frankly. It sounds like what you're saying is that if we actually came up with a drug to slow the progress of sarcopenia, that it would be so widely adopted that on a population level, raise safety issues. It's a legitimate concern, but obviously all drugs need to be safe. All drugs need to be safe. I think that the concern is that it would be so widely used that there would be some safety concerns for some small group of people 
whatever, maybe people that have untreated hypertension or people that have frank diabetes, you know, whatever the underlying kind of disease might be, maybe some drug might have a safety problem there. But on the other hand, the societal impact would be large. It would be extraordinary. Yeah, it would be. I totally agree. You know, anytime you introduce a new drug that's going to be widely used in what is arguably a healthy population, and we can get into this question of whether geriatric people who are confined to uh, bed rest in nursing homes could be defined as healthy. You know, safety is paramount. That's an interesting observation. If you remember the uh, bisphosphonates like Fosamax to treat osteoporosis, the initial indication was for frank osteoporosis, which is very low bone density that can lead to a bone fracture. After that, the drug companies pushed the use of these drugs for what was termed osteopenia, which is just lower bone density. And then the drugs were taken up by much, much larger population of women. And there have been some issues related to safety and efficacy over a long period of time of these drugs. And I think that the FDA kind of regrets that that kind of broad permission was given to to treat women who may not need (laughs) this drug, but now it's so widely prescribed that uh, it'd be impossible to pull it back. I know that you are a professor in the nutrition department at Berkeley, and we touched upon exercise. We should also touch upon nutrition. Obviously, they go hand in hand. And I was just wondering if you could just comments on the role of nutrition and perhaps even nutritional supplements in mitigating age-related pathologies. My lab at the USDA Human Nutrition Research Center, after that even, we were very, very interested in trying to define the dietary protein requirements of older people. The current recommended dietary allowance for young people or middle-aged people, actually for all people, is 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. Our research showed that the dietary protein needs of older people, even healthy older people, are much higher than that. We showed that if you actually put people on the recommended dietary allowance, even if you give them an adequate amount of calories, they lose muscle. So, and subsequent epidemiologic studies show that Protein intake is associated with the loss of muscle. And we know that there are a lot of older people who eat an inadequate amount of protein. You mean lack of protein intake, not protein intake. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, the protein intake is associated with sarcopenia. Protein is good. Protein is good. And so we have this fundamental problem that calorie requirements go down as we grow older. Our basal metabolic rate goes down and it's linked to how much muscle we have. That is the driver of our basal metabolic rate. So as we lose muscle, our metabolic rate goes down, our physical activity goes down, and so we need a lot fewer calories. Most of us don't decrease our calorie intake to match this declining need, and so we get fatter. At the same time, our muscles are not as efficient at making new protein, so we need more dietary protein. So as a percentage of our total diet, we need more high-quality 
and low-fat protein. And this is where potentially a nutritional supplement, a protein supplement can be of some real value in older people. Like whey, for instance? I know bodybuilders are into whey. Well, whey protein is a very high-quality protein. It is the richest protein in essential amino acids. These are the amino acids that our body can't make. And so increasing the intake of whey protein through a supplement is a pretty easy way to do it without having to uh, increase your fat intake. My recommendation has been increase your high-quality protein intake and decrease your fat intake. That will kind of help to preserve your muscle mass. Okay, well, you're on record. (laughs) But in closing, these longevity biotech companies are proliferating across the world and in the Bay Area, and BioAge is certainly part of that. What do you see as kind of a, you know, a positive outcome in the five to 10 year horizon in terms of what this increased attention to longevity from a drug discovery perspective is? I kind of categorize these biotechs into two areas. One is maybe longevity, which is maximum lifespan kind of research. And the other one is geriatrics. And by geriatrics, I mean treating old people so they can live more functional lives with dignity. That's where I think the progress is going to be made. And that's why I think so highly of BioAge, because they're really focused on trying to find medicines that will make older people more functional. That's great. I'm not as sanguine about longevity, potential drugs that may allow us to live longer. You know, if you talk to a geriatrician, a doctor that treats old people, they're absolutely not interested in anything that's going to make their patient live to 120 years old. What they're really interested in are drugs that will allow their patients to stay out of a nursing home and lead an independent life. Yeah, it's um, health span versus lifespan. I think so. Or functional span, maybe. Okay. On that note, Bill, thank you so much for your time. You're a leader in the field, and I think your ideas are extremely valuable, especially to be disseminated to a broader audience. We really appreciate your time and your thoughts. So thank you, Bill. Well, thank you so much, Bob, for stimulating a series of questions. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at bioagepodcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, Bioage Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.